0: Today I'm speaking with Brian Pearson, who is an internationally recognized expert, author, and speaker on customer loyalty and marketing. As former president and CEO of Loyalty One, Brian is a pioneer in loyalty strategies and measured marketing. Brian and I talk about how we can use science to bust longstanding corporate myths and how we can shift business leaders to take a scientific approach Decision making. I am so happy to have a chance to to see you and talk with you, Brian. I've had a chance to to work with you over the years, and it's always such a pleasure to be able to talk to a person who I feel very aligned with when it comes to understanding uh, the power and beauty of gut in decision making. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't want to you know neglect that. Uh, who understands the, the strength that can come from experience and that wisdom from having tried things in the world, but a leader who also understands how data comes in to play and that distinction between data and evidence as a different way, sometimes a confrontational way of understanding the world. Sometimes that data and evidence might fly in the face of what our gut is telling us, and yet believes very much in that discipline of evaluating each of these inputs accordingly and seeing where that quality of evidence uh, comes in across these different inputs. And I think I know where some of that comes from with you. I think it comes from the fact that you studied science. I'd love I, to hear that story again and understand how it shaped your business thinking.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. Thank you for the very kind words and introduction. Um, Maybe for better, for worse, I do have uh, that real bug to uh, to kind of prove things out sometimes, and uh, we have all sorts of colloquial ways that we talk about this world of uh, intuition and kind of exploration in, in science, but it goes right back, it goes back to my youth, it even goes back before what you think it goes back to. So. Both my parents were medical doctors, and um, you couldn't sit around the dining room table and make a statement without backing it up with some form of evidence. <laughs> it was sort of like, well, why do you feel that way? It was sort of the first question that came out when when you were asked, uh, when you raised something at the, at the dinner table. Um, but I did do my undergraduate degree in sciences and then went on to do an MBA. Um, and I think my early days of strategy and marketing were really shaped by that combination of those two degrees because... Uh, you know, the agencies would come in and present things and I go, well, what, what's the evidence and, and what, why, why do you have a belief, if I spend more money on brand advertising, that I'm going to grow my market share? And uh, they would traipse out all sorts of fancy people out of New York offices and uh, <laughs> try and convince me, young product manager, uh, as to why these things were, were actually factual. Um, but that, I was frustrated with marketing. Kelly, I mean, I, I really was because I think it was highly intuitive and sort of gut based and creatively based um, and you looked for the results in your sales numbers, but um, the real understanding of what was happening with the consumer was something that, uh, that um, you know, was done through market research, but not through experimentation. And, and when I discovered marketing direct mail, um, you know, the very early days is pre-loyalty. That's when all of a sudden the world kind of opens up because you you start to be able to have something called a control group. Uh, and that harkens right back to science, right? So yes, you're very correct <laughs> that there's, it's, it's well entrenched in, in who I am and the training that I had very early on. And I think that when I stumbled upon uh, initially database and direct marketing and later loyalty based marketing, I kind of found my home because I just felt very comfortable in that mix of creative and analytics.
0: Uh, it's such an important uh, journey that you've been on. And there's so much for us to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> there
1: always is, Kelly. We always go into these wild and crazy sort of <laughs> departures into different zones. So why should this be any different? <laughs>
0: Um, I, I, I love how uh, you were able to put the, the data science aspect of the technology journey that you were, you were there at the beginning. That's that ability to take these observations in the world, to see these you know, transactions, and, and actually have that as, as data. You know, we're a long ways away. Um, for, for many companies, you know, when things were done by paper and there was no there was no database to, to <laughs> no. you know, step back and analyze other than their intuition or their or their years of experience. And so now we had data to really power that up. But what's so, I think, revolutionary in the way that you see the world is you drop the word control group. Yeah. And there's just such a revolution in just that simple concept. And I think that there's a lot of work to do because so many marketers bring, I think, you know, a beautiful way of seeing the world, a beautiful way of maybe wanting to tell a human story or try to have a better understanding of human needs and communicating with customers and creating that value proposition story for a company. And those are all awesome things. It's not just about, making the widgets and selling the widgets. It is about caring for that customer. And, and, that, is a, and that is an awesome spirit that our marketers and our advertisers bring. And, it, and, and on top of that, an understanding of aesthetics and, you know, the technicalities of distribution and, and all of that good stuff. But that scientific language that you developed as a child, the understanding of what a control group is, and then you said hypothesis, This is not vocabulary or a philosophy that people are comfortable with. And yet, I think we share the view that this is the most important way that we need to understand the world and challenge what we believe and challenge what we even think we see with our own eyes. In your experience, what drives that fear and what has been successful in helping you um, because I know that you're working with CEOs and CMOs all over the world, all the time having these conversations. And I know a lot of them that you're talking to, you know, uh, are, are now sitting at the, at the, at the table and, and you're the, not the parent. I don't, I don't mean to do that, to marginalize, you know, the leaders that you're talking with.
1: The gray beard, yeah.
0: But now you're the one, you know, leaning yeah. in and saying, you know, how do you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. So what's well, that I,
0: been like for you?
1: Um. I think even when I was a lot younger, I seemed to be the one at the table uh, trying to push people down this spectrum of really having a data-based approach. And what I mean is not database, but data-based basis to what, what the belief systems were. Um, and let the numbers and let the behaviors of what the consumer was actually doing uh, really pave the way to inform what we should do. Um, and I think uh what's what's interesting, I'm gonna go down two tangents. One tangent is and you can remind me if I forget one, but one tangent is down the migration where everything old is new again. What I mean by that is, you know, when we first started working in the loyalty space and starting to shine a light on who was actually shopping and how often and what did they put in their shopping carts and what were what those behaviors tell us about the dynamic of what was happening in a store, you know, it was a world where the mindset and the retailer was really a pilot high and watch them buy. You know, it's kind of like I, I have this very efficient means of communicating that chicken breasts are X and broccolis on sale. And I put that out in the marketplace and it cost me, you know, a fraction of a cent to put one in every door around, around uh, in the catchment area of the store. And uh, you know, what's been interesting is that we went through a little period where the there was a, a balancing act on the efficiency of marketing versus the efficiency of uh, a more data-based approach, a more thoughtful approach where um, there was real value because to your point, when it was paper-based and you're putting a stamp on a piece of paper to send out an offer to a consumer to personalize an experience, you know that actually cost a fair amount of money relative to a flyer. And so what happened was Um, that you really wanted to get it right. So you did have this this element of time and the ability to do test and control and understand which offers perform best and then do back tests and all this sort of direct marketing lingo that I can throw at you from the way back in the time tunnel. Then we went through a period where I think digital marketing started to take off. You had the efficiency and you had the ability to do the targeting. Um, And that was kind of the, the renaissance period where all this happened. and then you know, advertising shifted to online advertising, you had the rise of Facebook and Google and the reach and the targeting capabilities that were there. And it's almost like the flyer reborn. You know, I think what's what happened for a period of time is that um, people were crafting a customer experience, and then they were basically um, hammering away through a new form of mass advertising, which was super efficient, because the cost per click was nothing to to throw things out in the in the Google sphere or in Facebook to to target consumers, um, and I think it became thoughtless again in some ways. Do you know what I mean? It, it, there was there was an element thoughtless might be too strong a word, but there was an element there of of just um, back to pilot high and watch and buy. I can kind of push things out on uh, mass, and if it doesn't work, I'll just do version B and version C. And you know what I think we're we we're, we're kind of seeing as a tide shifting again. Back to um, things becoming more thoughtful, customer journey mapping, customer experience being a competitive differentiator, you know people really trying to understand the dynamic of the consumers, become more segmented around the micro segments that are there and become more intelligent again and and you know that's kind of trending what I see actually happening um, so I think that's that's one is a sort of cost of media cost acquisition cost of how you actually create the outreach. I think the other thing is. Um, you needed a seed change to happen in the, in the border. Um, you know, I remember sitting back about two decades ago trying to push water uphill on this idea of using data and thinking about what's really happening and doing, um, you know, specific targeting and testing to see which offers might resonate the most and, uh, and having a struggle in getting sometimes the dollars and cents versus the efficiency of just push it out in the flyer. And, uh, and I think the interesting piece is I remember reflecting, and the words came out of my mouth, which said, you know, we just may need a generational change to happen in the C suite, and then we're going to have a much easier time of pushing this through. And frankly, you know, between uh, alumni of the Air Miles Award Program in Canada, anyways, uh, who are now populated many of the largest corporations and loyalty programs across the country and a little bit of the seed change as they've sort of moved into more senior roles in all these organizations. I think we, um, have one of the most interesting markets in the world when it comes to loyalty points, how these programs are used to architect experience and, and what's actually happening. So both those things had to happen in order to get back to where we need to be. COVID's just an enhancer at this point in my view. So,
0: Mm. yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, you know the convergence of those two of those two threads to where uh, we're sitting um, as a behavioral economics consulting practice. Yeah. Those those two threads really align very well to I think some of the challenges that that we see. Um, First of all, the, the, the latter point that you were making around that generational change, which is basically having people that were, who grew up with digital and had expectations about digital playing a role in business and being comfortable with technology, um, not only as a channel for customers, but as a channel for, for business strategy through that data, is, is definitely something that we, we are dependent on as well. Mm-hmm. People who have that data science expectation. The second part is even more interesting and perhaps uh, a greater opportunity for us. And that's the first part that you were talking about around. It's one thing to uh, be able to put a lot of content out there, trial and error your way through it. Um, I like to use the analogy of, of um, you know, you throw spaghetti at the wall and you see what sticks. But what you talked about was now we need to start to become more thoughtful about that and so i use this i use this analogy of where behavioral science and psychology cognitive neuroscience all of these things are actually help companies not not just have that machine that that throws a lot of spaghetti in a really efficient way but we actually if you really think about what this problem is so let's deconstruct this let's say we want pasta to stick to the wall like wallpaper now we can start to operationalize this Well, we actually know a lot about pasta. If we think about a vermicelli noodle or angel hair versus a spaghetti versus a ziti versus maybe a fettuccine noodle, we're actually gonna be able to talk about the science of different surfaces. We can talk about how much starch should be in there to increase the level of, of stickiness. We can talk about the science of how fast and at what angle it should be thrown at. So behavioral science is loading that machine with the kinds of pasta that we already know with the, at the right speed and at the right angle, so we can get that wall wallpapered a lot faster. So that's that thoughtfulness that comes from behavioral science. So we see that there's this data engine, and now we want to feed all of this wonderful and rich science of, of human behavior in, into that process.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, okay, I'm thinking about pasta against the wall in all new worlds. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I think that, it, that the, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there is an element what, what you actually described at the beginning, which was um, sort of an intuitive approach, if you want, to, to pushing these things through um, and these ideas through is what we called response modeling. We had a fancy name for it, right? So in other words, you kind of threw it at, uh, you put an offer out there and then you saw who actually took up that offer and then you went in and analyzed who took it up to decide whether there were any critical insights over there, and then you said, if there's a profitable pool of people, then I'll find more like that. You know, that was response modeling. That was one way to go at it. I always liked the other way, and it maybe is because of the science background. Was the create a hypothesis, to think about why that would occur, and then effectively A/B test, test and control, whatever it is, and, and effectively start to see which which messages or which approaches sort of had a resonant quality with the consumer. Uh, It is why, years ago, when you came and knocked on my door, (laughs) I went, you mean there's a whole practice around this? (laughs) There's a whole methodology around it? And I know you guys have done a phenomenal job over the years of refining how you break these things down and really approach the problems and garner the insights and figure out how to get there. Um, But, you know, my my thoughts have always been that that, uh, behavioral economics, you know, in a lot of ways is, is uh, it provides the why, right? And, and we always said, and, and I'd love to hear your comments on this, is that there's always this say-do factor in the consumer. And, you know, in the early days, and, and even more recently, you, you turn around, I mean, we just did a study trying to understand um, are consumers more conscious of how socially active companies are in how they look at making purchase decisions? Right. So, we went out and surveyed that, and sure enough, you know, it had gone from like 16% to to 27% of the population was saying I shop more post-COVID with companies that that have a, 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 a an identifiable expression of something they're doing with social, and that number goes up to like. F- 42% in, in 18 to 34 year olds. Okay. So you go, okay, great. That's interesting. But there's always this famous say do factor, which is I can turn around and say, I'm doing it, but how, what really drives and what is the real, you know, behavioral aspects of what goes. And so for me, I always look to you guys and say, you're, you're the science and in in, in, in the psychology behind what really is going through the consumer's mind as they go forward. I think that's fair. Right.
0: Absolutely. That's that is definitely it. It's and that's one of the things that's made traditional market research so so difficult is because um, we, we want to talk to the consumer, uh, like, obviously, there's elements of that that make sense. But the part that's so difficult about that approach is that consumers for instance, can't unlock that that say do gap very easily or understand what the, the barriers are in or be able to articulate them in a in a way that can help that marketer maybe overcome that say do gap. So it's not that using focus groups isn't isn't uh, you know useful in some capacity, but to validate strategies, it's it's a very difficult way. It's wonderful for exploration. Mm-hmm. it's wonderful to kind of start to see some reactions but it's not a it's not an empirical method to to rely on uh, i think that the research question that you guys asked is absolutely fascinating and such an important one not not just because companies are trying to you know capitalize on the latest movement i mean in fact it, you answered that in a way which is like it's actually not driving that much of the purchase decision yet and yet companies are are leaning in further and further on trying to sort of do the right thing. We make our products and services, but we're trying to do that as ethically as possible across multiple dimensions, whether it's fairness through fair trade um, and how workers are are compensated along the the value chain, whether it's uh, environmental commitments and improving sustainability practices, um, whether it's uh, better pricing and, and fairness and transparency uh, for the customer themselves, and so on, that 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 model of a of a you know better form of of business companies are are doing that you know ind- independently of that customer take up, but we have to understand even when customers say that those are the things that they want, how do we actually um, not not drive them. Uh, to to follow through on that, but to drive through to actually help this be the way that we we all achieve what it is that we that we want, which is uh, companies that are more committed to sustainability and and those those um, you know better outcomes. So how do we overcome that gap? And and behavioral science does give us those insights. It does help us understand why it is that we have that say do gap. But additionally, it helps us to provide the mechanisms to drive the behavior change. What would help us overcome the say do gap? Sometimes we think, well, maybe it's just a matter of price. This, this better product is is more expensive, and so that becomes our barrier. Or maybe they're not aware of that social, um, you know, sustainability angle, or or whatever the benefits are being developed here. We want to look beyond you know, maybe pricing or financial incentive issues. We want to look beyond education issues. We want to look to other ways that we can design a choice architecture that would nudge that gap.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, uh. you know, it harkens back to an old test that we did. So we always believed in ERMOS, which is a coalition multi-partner program, that uh, there was a network effect, right? And that for some reason, the consumer when they saw the brand or offerings in the realm of all other a bunch of other offers from very reputable brands that there was an umbrella effect and it sort of lent itself that not only was that an accelerant for collecting the currency, but it was also um, Had kind of a positive halo effect to I can trust this brand or I'll pay more attention to the offers that are there. Uh, and we got pushback from one of our major customers. And so we ran a test. Um, where we basically sent out almost the same letter form with an invitation and something with an offer at the end for a certain product or service. Uh, And we just did it from the one company on its own. I'm not naming them on purpose. And then we sent out another version where we had that offer included, but then there were three other offers from some significant brands, other brands that were in the the program. And our response rate... And by the way, the offer from that the the questioning brand was exactly the same in both documents. The only thing that changed was the addition of these other brand offers that were there. And the response rate to the the multi-partner offer versus the single partner offer was two and a half times what the single partner offer was. So there was some dynamic there. And I think, again, this is back in the time tunnel, but it comes back to the conversation which says, what we didn't unpack is really... What is the real dynamic that's happening psychologically with the consumer, which is causing? We had the evidence which showed it happened, but we didn't really understand the dynamic, other than we could hypothesize it might be about there's more value, or it might be that there's this halo effect of other brands saying you should trust this brand or whatever. But you know, we we certainly created these great artifacts over time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's proved out
1: time and again, right? They proved out time and again, so.
0: What's, I think one of the other things. So obviously, there's a very technical element to the story that you just told, right? Yeah. There's there was a you know again you used hypothesis and you used control and you used data and you ran an experiment and you ran these transactions and you were able to to draw an inference and make a conclusion, yeah. and then that informed your strategy. Uh, and and I think we need to overcome people's fear of that. We need to help. Uh, our creative marketers um, overcome their fear of, you know, there's, there's a lot of technicality to all of that. There's the, the, the data side of it. There's the uh, technicalities of, okay, well, how do you actually go about designing this kind of experiment? Is it, is it a day? Is it a week? Is it, you know, how do you actually do all of that stuff? Um, but I think the thing that's the most important element of the story that you told is curiosity. And you don't necessarily need a science degree and, and two medical doctors as parents <laughs> to have those deeper questions about what's really happening here with yeah. this customer experience and turning that into like, hey, is there a halo effect going on here? Mm-hmm. Love to, I'd love to understand um, curiosity from your point of view and, and how, how do you help encourage people Think about that a little bit more systematically rather than just let those come and kind of neat little questions float away. But how do you grab a hold of those and make more out of them organizationally?
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, for me, it starts with two, well, two pieces. One is it starts with observing and thinking about the industry and, and what are the dynamics that are happening at a higher level of abstraction, you know, what's happening in the, in the grocery world and, and, you know, what are the dynamics and what, where do people tend to be shifting their shopping? And, you know, when COVID rolls around, you know, how does that dynamically change? But for me, the real, the real interesting work starts to go once you get into the customer and segmenting the customer base and really starting to understand and find these pockets of behavior that you, you can't really reconcile. You know what I mean? It's like, well, what, why is this actually happening? Or what is it about this group of consumers, which is foundationally different than this group over here? And, you know, the advantage we have today versus where we were a decade ago or two decades ago is the volume of information that exists and the tools that are out there like uh, um, artificial intelligence, you know, those kinds of things are um, are much more uh, able to kind of pinpoint and, and pull these sorts of, curious you know sometimes spurless uh (laughs) findings out of the system and then and then you sort of have to start asking the questions and i think um it usually starts with solving a problem but but you you do have to do the little wonder a bit and get lost in the data for a period of time and not uh you know not try and force fit everything into very standard buckets as as you're rolling through so we had I would say we had standard methodologies around how we did segmentation, et cetera. But we were always, you know, trained for and looking for those um, those pockets of things which didn't make any sense. Again, old story. Back in the time tunnel, we were we were trying to understand um, trade areas for different. You know, we did a lot of trade area work mm-hmm. about halfway through my tenure. And one of the ones we did, which is completely irrelevant now, was video stores, Um, but you could use fast food as a proxy for it if you wanted. And we were trying to understand why trade areas dramatically changed. Uh, And they didn't have sort of a consistent, it's like a kilometer around the store. And it all had to do with drive time. You know, like people were willing to go to the store to pick up and drop off. And the maximum time allotment actually get to the store was about six or seven minutes. And so if I lived, Um, in a standard neighborhood you could look and it was pretty circular around where the store was but if uh, I was actually had access to a major artery or highway the distance you had these dog bone we used to call them uh, trade maps you know where the store might be just off the highway but the actual access and the consumers were kind of a little bubble around it and then it went down the highway and then there was another little bubble at the end you know so they looked like a like a, the quintessential cartoon dog bone right and you know you sort of scratch your head at some point and you go what's the real dynamic that's underneath this and that's sort of you know prehistoric behavioral analytics which was the mindset that i'm only willing to do x number of minutes and so the real defining factor was time not distance to the store it was the time it would take me to get there so i think it's uh yeah that's just a little example of of not necessarily having a very scientific approach but in the course of working through something discovering you know a a very key insight that may or may not have come up through the market research piece and really getting down to be able to quantify you know how how what was that unit of time realistically not because the consumer said oh yeah i'll drive 10 minutes to go you know pick that up but really being able to get down and say no 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 it's it's actually much tighter than that and well, how does that drive your decisioning around network planning or, you know, Netflix doesn't matter because you've got, you know, 6,000 streaming channels now, so, but at the time, you know, but does that work for fast food? Does it work for coffee? Does it work, you know, what are the dynamics around that? And how does the data actually, you know, start to pop things up?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And then it even starts to change uh, how, how you advertise, how you promote, how you position, oh. Because if time is is uh, an implicit factor in how people are making the decision, you can really make sure that you are are speaking to that and help to reach the folks who might not otherwise realize the 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 position and the relationship between uh, the consumer and and this location.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I am still amazed, and I'm sure you discover this in the work you do for clients as well. Is how many. Um, you know, corporate myths are just held on forever and nobody's ever scratched the surface of them to say, are these real or not? Is this just mythology or is this actually rooted in some true behavioral, um, you know, system that exists in how my consumer, you know, interacts with the category or with my brand or, you know, whatever the dynamic is that's there. And uh, there was a time where I thought it was when all the uh, new age companies had all these you know, like data guru and whatever, and I and I was going to have mine be MythBuster, just like the uh, the television uh. program, right? Because there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know that was right. Yeah. It, it's like you used to go into the, the corporate environment and they'd say, you know, these are our five foundational beliefs that we build everything we do from a promotional standpoint or whatever, and you'd go, okay, which one of these do I want to take on? Because <laughs> You know the best way to demonstrate the value of data and insight and sort of consumer was actually to take one of these things apart and say well yeah you're about 20 percent right but here's the other 80 percent and um i can remember we did a pilot for a very major uh uh retailer frequency retailer and when we got the data back um the concentration of spend in the business, typical Pareto principle, you know, 80-20, 20% of customers, 80% of, pro, of revenue and probably higher profit. Uh, and we showed the the repeat purchasing frequency and, and what volume of uh, of their sales was coming from a relatively small amount of their customers. And the executive just couldn't believe, go back and run the numbers again, that can't be right. You know, we our customers are way more loyal than that. We see way more, and it's like, no, nah, your dynamic is pretty well like every other retailer in the universe. So, um, you know, that, that conversation really takes you down the path of, you know, what are you going to do for those customers? How are you going to treat them lowly? What, what is it about the other customers that's preventing them from migrating up to the same purchase patterns? What's the, what is the psychology and behind, which is causing that dramatic drop between, you know, your top 20% and the next 20? And, and what's, you know, how do you fix that? That's, there's so much growth opportunity for most businesses by accessing the next 20.
0: So I think that this gets at one of the things that I think is one of the most fundamental elements of the principles of scientific thinking that ought to potentially be very disruptive in organizations. I think, you know, people are, are trained to be obligated to have answers. Mm. And uh, not having an answer is seen as a sign of weakness. It's leaves you vulnerable and it's risky in an organization. It's risky when your boss or someone else looks to you for the answer to a question and you say, I don't know. It's a very vulnerable position to put yourself in. And that's one side. And then the other side is the expectation is that you're coming to the table with ideas, solutions, you in know innovation this is what we ought to do strategies tactics it's all about it's the emphasis is all on coming to the table with that and i think that that's one of the things that's so fascinating about science is it's actually the exact opposite science mm. is all about celebrating you know the humility it's about celebrating i don't know i don't know becomes it's like oh i don't know it's exciting It's something that I don't have an answer to, and I wonder if anyone does. Has anyone looked at this? And the power in scientific thinking is in coming up with really good questions mm-hmm. that haven't been answered before and challenging those pre existing beliefs. And I think if we're able to inculcate this culture in the boardroom, starting there, we'll be able to unlock that curiosity, celebrate risk taking. Uh, help people, uh, you know, democratize that innovation process inside the organization. So we don't lean on the people who have what, what appear to be robust solutions and great ideas all the time. But instead, let's put the focus on people that are asking really good questions like you that said, well, you know, how do, how do we know which of these, you know, let's, let's dig a little deeper on these, you know, you know foundational, you know, as you call them, foundational beliefs, they were facts, <laughs> they were foundational beliefs. Beliefs, yes. So this is, uh, this is this power of scientific thinking that we ought to bring in. And, and I, I think fundamentally it'll be very disruptive. I, I think that if we celebrate people who uh, ask more questions then in fact come to the table with solutions that we'll actually get a very different kind of outcome in our organizations. I think we'll actually, it'll lead to diversity and inclusion mandates being uh, represented. We have such bias in our culture to people who have those answers, who have that extroversion, who have that uh, strong and powerful, you know, force of, of personality, uh, and and that those are you know wonderful attributes of the human mosaic. But unfortunately, inside of our organizations, it often leads to this kind of snowballing effect of like, you know, he is confident, therefore he must be right, and he has a solution. But instead, it's it's the it's what seems to be, you know, the meek, the questioning, the curious, the humble that might actually help advance finding that that 80/20 and start chipping away at. First of all, that as the truth, and second of all, digging deeper.
1: I love that. I think um, you know, it's funny. It's from you use the word curiosity, and uh, one of the things that I always had is a hiring must. For folks, when I when they got to my got to my desk, was do they demonstrate intellectual curiosity? And that, in my mind, you know, the be humble piece was clearly very important. But that piece of intellectual curiosity was mission critical to me. Um, and and you know, celebrating the people who said I don't know. And celebrating the people who um, were questioning and, and you know creating the you had to create a vessel sometimes for them to actually be able to feel comfortable and do the experiments and get at things and one of the things I did in late in my tenure um, at loyalty one was I created something called zero gravity labs uh, and zero gravity labs really um, was an inspiration i can 't remember who the speaker or the author was but he He talked about uh, innovation in organizations and that, you know, most organizations, and it's it's a different way of saying exactly what you did, uh, you know, the T cells of an organization uh, wrap themselves around new ideas and expunge them because that's not the way we do it or it's not our belief system or it's, you know, whatever it is. It's just very difficult for, for real innovation to happen in larger organizations. And so I kind of reflected on that and I said, you know, I always worry about, you know, all these technologies that are coming up and, you know, facial recognition and quantum computing, you can go through a whole list of these things. And it's like, I don't know what the implications are, but I can look over at my technologists, my marketers and and my data analytics folks, and I, I can see that they're on the treadmill, working with what's there. And yeah, the intellectual curiosity exists, but it's like this wide, right? And I need somebody who's looking like that wide. My hands should disappear out of the screen. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, So I built the zero gravity labs and it was essentially an innovation spot, which had no mandate um, other than we would meet quarterly and say, you know, what's popped up on your radar and and what do we want to understand? You know, Amazon go gets launched. Okay. Well, how are they actually doing that? Where's the technology in behind it? Amazon didn't build it all. So we found the universities where the foundation technologies were being developed and, um, and then they started playing with it in, a brick and beam space. It was outside of our corporate headquarters. Um, it was also a means that allowed me to reach into the tech community in Toronto in a way that wasn't threatening. It's not like you're showing up at the RBC tower, you know, kind of waving and going, oh my god, you know, where am I going? That wasn't where our offices were, but, um, uh, but hyper corporate, hyper whatever, it was like, I'm like you. I'm exploring. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to create and, and look at where the future is going. And so that, that's just another form of really embracing kind of what we talked about the curiosity piece experimentation and and really trying to understand the implications and and sort of you know what's lying around the corner on where, where, where it goes. Uh, and we And we had you know we probably took two or three things out of that and kind of operationalized it into the business um while, while i was still there but uh yeah, you know, it was it was just beginning to get, in my view, the the kind of traction that that uh, uh, we needed to refine the product over
0: time. So. That's awesome. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to understand. You know what are the what are the most pressing issues of, you know, the leaders of our, you know, Fortune five hundred, our global one thousand, um, in in particular right now and. Yeah. I certainly think that scientific thinking is a part of the solution, even though they haven't asked the question yet. And uh, unlocking that organizational curiosity and, and the willingness and the ability to challenge kind of the accepted wisdom. But another thing that I've been thinking about is, I feel like we're, we're at a period where we, can, we, we, need, uh, we need restoration. We need recovery. And we need to, to rebuild and um, so many of the things that we we know and believe to be true have have all been um, either disrupted um, or maybe even destructed but but where do we go from here what what should we be building towards it's one thing to uh, criticize maybe the World Health Organization but But what, so where do we go instead? It's another thing to challenge these organizations that we've built uh, over the last, you know, decades. But then what do we put in its place? If there were things that were not that great, if we were questioning the status quo, if we were questioning experts, great. But where do we go from here? Because in absence of, of of a vision of where we want to go as a society, I think we're going to that that disruption will will turn into potentially uh, us moving backwards into into decay to, to devolution. So where do you think that, you know, we ought to be going as as a society, you know, the scientific thinking to what end?
1: Right. Wow. OK, Sorry. How long <laughs> do we have what a great question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean when you get to the World Health Organization, you might be uh punching above my pay grade in terms of what to do with uh with the WHO over the next little while. Um let me let me pull it back a little and then kind of maybe I'll wind my way towards that territory. The uh for me, I mean, what an interesting um last seven, eight months to to watch what's happened in the world uh on so many fronts, geopolitically. From a leadership standpoint what's happened economically and then foundationally what's happened with the consumer right so let's start with the consumer um i mean just the average person out there uh, this is a classic scenario of uh maslow's hierarchy you know pyramid of needs right You, you you saw people really default and go right back to the bottom couple of levels you know i need food water i need to make sure that i'm safely at home I've got a roof over my head. And you know how am I gonna keep that to happen from an employment standpoint? And at the end of the day, you know, do I feel safe? And, and I think when you look at the dynamics of what's been going on around that organizationally, I think a lot of senior leaders are struggling with figuring out this balance between my employee safety versus what I have to do for the consumer, um, how I need to completely reinvent or take advantage of the technologies that exist you know, how do I keep revenue coming in the door? What happening to my supply chain? I I can't imagine a period of time that's had more dynamic um, forces, you know, striking on all parts of the business. Most of the time you're dealing with a crisis in one point. Um, In this instance, I mean, it's come from all over the place. And if you're fortunate enough to be in like the golf industry, patio heaters, you know, (laughs) wood, Uh, plants, garden plants, that was good too, you know, all those things that exploded that you couldn't find. Um, You know, maybe you didn't worry so much about sales, you'd supply chain issues, but I'd say that the vast majority of businesses, and and especially when you look at small businesses, which make up a significant portion of, of the economy and employment for people, you know, what huge challenging times they are. So, you know, in amongst that has been a level of innovation that has actually, frankly, just shocked me. Like, if you go back in time where we really didn't know how severe this was and, you know, would you catch it because somebody ran past you on the street who had COVID and they were jogging, um, all the way to the point where now there's a much clearer understanding of how, you know, what's safe and what's not safe. And I think we've been able to open things up a bit with, with safety protocols. You know, the first two or three weeks it's like everybody went to ground. Oh my God, how, how are we going to manage this? Where does this go? What does this look like? You know, what do I have to do? Um, and then gradually you started to see, you know, this, the human spirit kind of come to bear around the innovation that needed to happen, right? So you really wanted to see, you know, how did they do click and collect things that had been you know, put aside in North America, in particular from a retail standpoint, were more vibrant in Europe and Asia, where they they were using these multi-channel, omni-channel kind of approaches. All of a sudden the North American retail community had to figure it out one way or another. And, you know, I I always one of the things I love, and, and maybe this starts to wind our way towards some of the bigger questions that are there, is a little bit of the the view of good, better, best. You know what I mean? Um and that that you know so often CEOs and organizations and everything they they archetype everything that if i can't be the best or you know we're not going to launch that because i don't want to launch something that's that's not great it gets back to the the principles we talked about of experimentation just at a broader business level right and so you know, why isn't it okay to go down and brood of saying, I'm going to try this and I'm not going to get it all right. And, you know, is the world and my consumer and everything else going to understand that because I'm moving from good to making it better to then, you know, refining it to be the best expression of whatever the functionality is that's there. Um, And I think that, you know, That kind of mindset is what we've seen and what we continue to see in things like work from home. You know, how do you refine the system where all your employees actually aren't in an office? And when we go back to offices, because that will happen at some level, what does good better best look like in terms of practices of what it's like when people actually start to migrate back in offices? How do they feel safe? How do they work efficiently? How do they work in this hybrid environment where some people are in the office Some people are not. Um, And, and uh, so I think when you apply that thinking and you get to the really big question, which is the WHO and sort of, you know, this mass, how do we deal with this in a more constructive way? um, You know, maybe it's simplistic, but maybe those are some of the principles that need to be looked at. You kind of kind of have to unwind what was there because there's errors and issues and problems that were there and you start to have to create a hypothesis of you know what what were the failures where were the points where we didn't you know create the right uh, alarm mechanisms or notification mechanisms how do we as a uh, an organization or a community of countries who support this you know kind of get back to the point where we start to design the systems with the right purpose basis to kind of get at the underlying concerns that have been identified by countries, leaders, you know, other organizations, etc. I think the, the piece that has to reign is really this view that the collective is better than the individual. And, you know, the biggest concern for me through all this stuff that's gone on is, is this entrenchment where everybody's kind of defaulted to self-interest, um, which probably somewhere in behavioral economics is a major dynamic, I'm sure. (laughs) Maybe I should ask you that question. Um, But this default to self-interest, where where the real balance, and I think part of the reason why Canada has had a very different response in a lot of ways to what we've seen to COVID in, let's say, the country south of the border in the US, is that you have a varying degree of participation and cooperation between the city, local government, state government, federal government. And in Canada, I think maybe because of mindset, maybe just because um, we're a smaller country and had to get it right in a different way. Um, You know, there's a level of cooperation and a view generally that we're in for the collective. And, And maybe that comes back to socialized medicine and all these other things. So you need that same mindset and some leaders to kind of step up and say, you know, what is the role of the World Health Organization? Um, how would the world of health organize you know what are the gaps that were sort of laid bare through this particular pandemic and you know what do we need to do to re-architect the system so that it actually not only addresses that but maybe begins a a migration of how we would prevent similar things from happening in other categories of medically related health issues that are out there I mean there's let's call it as it is. I mean, people had been hanging out there saying pandemic would be something which would be a significant issue. Uh, and you know certain governments basically took apart the systems that were actually designed to address and figure out how to manage it. And again, back to the innovative thing, I, one of the things I found fascinating, I think it was about two months ago was uh, our Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, announcing that he was gonna contract with a, um, a ventilator uh, manufacturer in Canada who was resident in Ontario to actually manufacture ventilators. Well, you know, something's a little broken in the system when, you know, it's the old, it's the same adage that we have in business. Everything defaults to, I got to buy it the cheapest. And maybe the cheapest isn't always the right answer when you look at the whole economy and you can, you know, if you really want to get to it, you can call that out for everything from uh, understanding uh, climate change and plastics and all these sorts of things—is you know what's the what's the full cost of these items uh, relative to to how we actually produce them and, and what the downstream effects are of everything goes into packaging and whatever else, as opposed to really looking and saying, well, you know, if we look at this with a different eye, with a different view to how um, how we should assess the full economic impact or the full social impact of these things you know do we really understand um uh the whole cost uh or or are we in a place where we're uh effectively you know making wrong decisions because we haven't actually gathered the full data load that we need to gather the full 360 degree view of what these things are or what's happening with them so
0: yeah what a wonderful answer you you touched on on just so many interesting threads um and I, I'll, I won't do uh, you know justice to to this, but I'll, I'd like to just replay um, some of the elements of of what I heard. Yeah. Um. So, um. So my so my 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 question was, um. You know, I feel like we're in this period of it's been this um you know heavy. It's you know it's disruption, but it's a it's a disruption that's been very destructive. Um. There has been criticism of of. Of the status quo politically and socially on so many levels, whether it's uh, tackling what is the role of the police in our society, mm. uh, where do we look to for healthcare guidance, um, what is an expert? Um, all of these things have have um, been subject to uh, a very uh, vicious kind of uh, uh, um, reaction. And um, to to the point of, in in some cases, just instead of disruption the way that we think about it, uh, you know, Joseph Schumpter, disruption leads to creative innovation, but disruption that leads to destruction. And, And if our momentum is destruction and devolution, that could potentially lead us to a worse outcome than what we all want or what many of us want which is a more positive, uh, a more positive place. And uh, I had asked you, um, you know, to what end? And I think, you know, you answer that, which is, you know, purpose-based organizations that counter self-interest, which is part of this destructive trend that are, are born through the spirit of cooperation in it for the, you know, how do we, co- you know, cooperate for the collective and, 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 and part of that to what end is being accountable to the full social and economic cost and benefits. Um, and, and that is the equation that we should uh, hold ourselves up to. Backtracking a little bit. If that is the goal, this purpose-based collective cooperative thinking that operates with this new equation, The way to get there is through this process of we don't need to torch the whole thing. Let's stop. Let's ask the difficult questions. Let's challenge the fundamental principles that got us here, that got this institution here, whether it's the police or the who or the government or our own companies. What got us here? And we can collectively ask those difficult questions. We can start to take those things apart we can start to separate out opinion from fact, which is the data support, in terms of objectively diagnosing what went wrong, so that we can then establish the foundation that we need for that collective cooperation to to rebuilding something better. So I think that- um,
1: Wow, I wish I could have said it that way. Good job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely something I've been mulling over, and and I've oh, been yeah. trying to figure out, um, you know, and and it's it's amazing how you did that. Like I think very much about uh, purpose based um, organizations. I've got I've actually got a book right here. I don't know if you've ever uh, you if you've ever read this work. It, the book is called Greater Good.
1: Mm, no. And the
0: great. the subtitle is How Good Marketing. Makes for better democracy.
1: Oh, interesting!
0: And uh, the the professors uh, John Quelch and, and Catherine Joss—they they're they're on to other things. This is a this is a this is an old book actually, um, but I I think it very much uh, supports the premise of another organization that we're very involved with, which is called Just Capital. And mm. Just Capital is. Uh, very much operationalizing the premise that we should move um, and can move from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism and, and shareholder capitalism tempers the reins of that financial self-interest and makes organizations accountable for balancing uh, those those you know the social the environmental the economic interests that that you that you outlined Right. So what you talked about is resonates very much we can use scientific thinking to achieve this this positive um you know uh just capitalism for the for the for the uh, exactly. collective good.
1: Yeah, I think it's you know in the last article I wrote for Forbes um uh kind of went down the whole path. This is the research that we we pulled on the numbers or people just shopping. It was a pure hypothesis curiosity. It felt like uh, there was a lot more conversation, but was that having an impact on how people thought about um, where they were guiding their, their consumer dollars. Um, and I think to build on, on your point, one of the the last points I made in the article was effectively, you know, when you've got organizations like BlackRock that have trillions of assets, dollars of assets under management that are adopting kind of the ESG framework Um, and, uh, as a means to think about where money should go, you know, if you're in the retail community and you're out there and you're not paying attention to these things, you know, are we going to see a movement more in the private equity and in, in these kind of investment conglomerates that they're going to look at this and start to say, um, not because I have a green fund or an ethical fund, but because it's foundationally how every dollar gets invested is I'm not putting money into organizations. I'm not going to take something out of bankruptcy that doesn't have or express the right ethos around these kinds of major social environmental issues that are out there. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's started and you're hearing some of the, the, the real, you know, high level individuals who show up at Davos and, and push things around, starting to really embrace this overall. And I think you're also starting to see this echo its way back through the consumer experience. I was reading today, um, and I'm trying to remember who the retailer was, it might've been in the UK, um, where they're basically uh on their private label uh they're putting it up and they're saying this is what i'm selling it to you for but this is the total cost of the product really and it's like you know 2.99 versus like five dollars and it's material right and so you know am i going to force the consumer to pay the full freight and that's really looking at the whole cost of the product through the entire lifespan of what what is there and you know that's the kind of education. So you know you and I come with a certain dynamic which is let me understand the real facts. let's peel back the layers of the onion to really get at what the underlying dynamic is of what's going on here, what's true, what's not true, what we need to understand and then start to craft a plan. The problem that we have, Largely is that people you know they kind of shoot first and ask questions later. and you know it's it's yes, there's systemic issues in the police force. Um, is it universal? No. Um, does that mean we should be in a place where you defund it? Well, what does defund mean? And I think the, the issues with uh, <coughs> excuse me with social media is that you get this amplification of these ideas and and sort of these very information and all sorts of things that go along and we, we have to be more responsible as business people and as 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 individuals who have our our hands sometimes on the control of communication mechanisms on on what gets you know what gets proffered out there and pushed out and and that's that's for me the the piece that's really scary is it's just not fact-based sometimes and you know, I, <laughs> my wife would, would was killing herself laughing the other day because, you know, the stats are coming out on this, that, and the other in terms of the COVID cases and whatever. And I go, what's the damn denominator? Somebody give me the denominator, right? I was going apoplectic because there was no, you know, a statistic without context is a number. It's nothing more than that. So what's the context around the number which makes it – You know, meaningful and sort sort of puts it in the realm of where it sits relative to everything else. And then the next day, the New York Times published exactly what I was asking for, and we were like, (laughs) "Whoa!" Like, I don't know. I know my phone's listening to me all the time and (laughs) tweeting stuff, but this is really creepy because it got to the Times. Um, So I I I really see, you know, there's a dynamic which just there's so many forces for good that while I worry about the forces that, that lead us down a path to destruction <laughs> in terms of what's there, I just think the human condition at some point will prevail and, you know, an evidence-based approach, um, I hope, uh, with experimentation and, and, and with education will will lead to the right, the right questions, um, not only being asked and answered, but also the dynamic, which actually takes us down a path, which is more, much more responsible over time
0: absolutely, uh, I think we have uh, uh, just so much opportunity to to resonate off of off of one another, so I think that this alignment on the ESG goals and then the path to get there um, using scientific thinking, both the numeracy issues that you raised the understanding and leveraging of data science and the role that the change the science of behavior change can play in helping us get to this outcome i think it does uh it does forebode um good good things to come from this period of disruption
1: yeah it's uh you know what you pulled up a book i don't actually have it handy and i think i loaned my copy to somebody i never got it back but there was a book that that I think is very, was very inspirational to me when I read it, and it's more on the environmental side. It was called Cradle to Cradle, and I don't know if you ever saw this, but the basic tenet was: Why do you have to have a factory which dumps effluent out the other end from a manufacturing process which is toxic to the environment? Why can't the effluent be just water? You know, and so part of it is is in chasing the almighty dollar and the maximum profitability you end up cutting corners on things that if you thought about environment by design like privacy by design like all these things which which if you actually step back and think about uh, and ask the big question well you know why can't i manufacture something and make sure that everything that's toxic or whatever on the way through finds another application in a way that what comes out the far end is water, you know, and, and nothing more toxic than water. And if I actually think about it on that basis, you know, would I design something completely differently and how would that be revolutionary? And, you know, it's it's got some great case studies in the book. It's I don't know how old it is, it might be 12 years old. It was printed on mylar, not on paper. So you could actually mm-hmm. read it underwater, make notes in it, you know, whatever you want. It's you know, probably not the cheapest um, manufacturing process to actually publish a book, but it was the principle of the book was completely recyclable, completely, whatever, enduring, I don't know, but it was, it was very thoughtful. And, you know, whether it's, uh, since I spend a lot of time in data, as you do, I mean, you know, there's lots of concerns around data and information and what's private and what's not. And, you know, I, I, I get creeped out by stuff showing up on my phone that I've only talked about, never searched, because obviously somebody's tapped into the microphone on my phone and is listening to what I'm saying uh, and then pushing content out to me or advertising out to me. That really bothers me. But consensual um, uh, a relationship with a brand that I care about where I'm willing to share information and in turn they're using that information to, for, for good, to create a better experience, to, to refine the customer journey, to bring new services to light, all the rest of that, you know for me that's that's i think most consumers would turn around and say i'm really good with that and so you know i remember i think it was um uh what was the old privacy minister in uh ontario and Kavuki, and you know when she used to talk about privacy by design she wrote a book on that yeah i was a, a strong believer in in that approach it's you know you don't have to go out and basically accumulate every piece of information you can on people um, and, then, and then hold on to it forever, you you need to be thoughtful around what you need to collect in order to answer the types of questions we have. And, and in answering the questions, really have that sort of, again, positive intent that what you're trying to do is actually enhance, not just make more money, but actually enhance the quality of the journey and the experience for a consumer so you build their long-term loyalty and therefore, you know, you're enduring sales over time. And, you know, that was the path that, I was on for many, many years. It's a path I continue to be on um, with some interesting uh, uh, small companies that I'm working with now. And, and yeah, you know, I just, I, I just think we're, we're living in a, in such interesting times.
0: Well, with that, I know that uh, we have to wrap up. <laughs> um, I very much look forward to the next time we can continue our conversation but um, I thank you so much for your time today and it's it's just so fantastic to hear your point of view and and the wisdom that you've accumulated and I'm excited by your optimism and the fact that we need you know more leaders who have scientific thinking and I I hope that um, I I think that the way that you speak about science makes it incredibly accessible, and this is what we need uh, more of. And I'm so happy to have heard your voice uh, tell these stories, and you know, from your journey from the beginning to the kinds of things that you're continuing to think about. So we we need more scientific leaders. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for. uh giving me the opportunity to share, we never know where, what paths we're going to go down. Maybe you secretly know where we're going, but I always find these conversations um, to be thought-provoking, challenging, and uh, if we can further the cause of science and business, then let's, let's keep pushing. How's that?
0: That's awesome. Thanks so much. You're welcome.